Constructing Modern Knowledge podcast. Today's episode is a May 21st recording of our Ask Me Anything session with a very special guest, TED Prize recipient, Dr. Sugata Mitra. Here's your host, Dr. Gary Steger. I miss hanging out with Sugata. We haven't seen each other in about 18 months face-to-face, so this is the best that we've got for now. But I really appreciate his willingness to, to talk to, to some of my friends, old and new. I see fo- folks from Bulgaria who I miss and from all across the United States and probably Australia and other folks from other places. So I'm really grateful to have them here with us. So first off, how are things in Kolkata, Sugata? Um, uh, okay. Uh, uh, <laughs> good evening, everybody, and uh, thanks for joining in. Uh, Calcutta, well, we just had a cyclone yesterday, you know, and uh, that goes uh, well with it, pandemic. It, yeah, well, I, I mean, we have the pandemic, of course, and and uh, in addition, we had cyclone, so they had to relocate uh, a couple of million people uh, uh, with social distancing. Uh, it's a bit hard, you know, to, to relocate a couple of million people who are socially distanced. <laughs> but uh, anyway, whatever it is, they did. It turned out to be a big storm. And uh, the media, of course, said that it's the biggest storm that there has ever been. But let me tell you that uh, it wasn't anything like that. It was actually uh, quite a pleasant and breezy night. And the temperature dropped a lot dropped from uh, about 37 degrees centigrade. Uh, that, I think, is about 100 and something yeah. Fahrenheit. Uh, it dropped about uh, 15 degrees, you know. And uh, so here we are. Uh, it's pleasantly cool. Uh, the storm's gone. Uh, the virus uh, very much around everywhere. Um, uh, and that's it. So for... Let me a little some game. Uh, um, let me just give folks a, a sense of how we're going to proceed. I'm going to ask Dr. Mitra a few questions, and then we'll open it up, and we'll be um, mindful of his time. He may have to leave, and then anyone who wants to continue um, asking questions of myself are welcome to stay. Um, so, just for some background for folks who may be unfamiliar with your work, um, what were you doing before you got famous? Uh, <laughs> That was the more interesting time in my life, actually. Uh, <laughs> I, <laughs> I started out uh, doing physics uh, way back. You, know, you, don't want, you don't want to know how far back. Uh, I did physics, and uh, in those days, it was uh, a, 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 you know, quite cool to, to work on organic semiconductors. I mean, now you can buy those. They're inside TV screens and everything. But uh, they were very cool in the 1970s. So I did my PhD on organic semiconductors, which basically means uh, looking at where currents flow uh, through materials where it shouldn't actually flow, you know, and how they do that and that sort of thing. Anyway, so uh, I had a, a really cool time in a PhD is a really good degree. Let me tell you that. It's, it's really good. Uh, you have a supervisor 
and you have a research question and nobody knows the answer to your research question and very few people actually even care but then you spend about three to five years trying to figure out an answer to this question and uh, you also spend those three to five years trying to stay, stay as far away from your supervisor as you can. I successfully did both. And I got a PhD really fast, you know. <laughs> so that's what I was doing. And then I came out of my PhD and I, and I became a computer programmer because back in those days, it was a super high-tech job to be a computer programmer. So there I was, a computer programmer, and I was programming computers and I was teaching people how to program computers and everything. And in the middle of all this, I did an experiment. And that experiment actually changed everything that I was to do later in my life. It was an experiment called the hole in the wall. And all it had to do was to, was to just uh, take some children show them a computer, you know, in those days you had children who had never seen one, show them a computer and just leave it with them. If you can mute your mic, everyone else, that'd be great for now. Okay, continue. Okay, so I, I was just telling you what I did before. <laughs> yeah, before yeah. I got so, so, yeah. So, so tell us a little bit more about the hole in the wall for folks who may have actually been behind the wall all these years well uh, you know the, back then 1999 uh, people used to think that uh, everybody needed to learn how to use a computer uh, you know i mean you needed to learn what a keyboard was and what a mouse was and you know that sort of thing and what you can do with a computer it was very expensive to get one and everything so when I did the hole in the wall, uh, we had children who were actually using computers. And they were using these computers on uh, which I had given them uh, embedded into walls. You know, like you take a, a stretch of wall, say next to a park or something, make a hole in it and stick a computer in there and just leave it for kids to play with. And like everybody knows now, the kids would start doing all sorts of amazing things with it. So I published that and everybody said, well, somebody must have taught them. And I said, no, I mean, honest to goodness, I promise nobody taught them. So they said, that's not possible because in order to learn something, you have to have somebody who teaches it. So that's how it all started with this basic assumption about education that in order to learn you need to be taught the hole in the wall broke that assumption um, and i spent the rest of my life including up to now trying to figure out how children learn when they have not been taught and there are many answers uh, but the answers are not exactly uh, according to the traditional norms of the education system. The answers are strange. The answers uh, 
take you back into anthropology. They take you back into insect behavior. They take you back all over the place. And they finally dragged me back into physics. And that's another story, Gary, which will probably take too long to explain how it drags you back into physics. So, so what are some of the insights that you have about learning without being taught that come from that experience? Well, yeah, well, the first thing I noticed was that a single child with one device or even with one book does learn, but learns a bit slowly, you know, I mean, uh, learns gradually learns if they want to get bored etc but if you change the situation and you take that computer or you take even that book and you surround it with three or four other children and allow them to talk then what they do is they start showing off to each other so one guy says to the other i can figure this out and the other guy says you're really dumb. I mean, you couldn't figure out anything. And then the third guy pipes in. And all of this together somehow produces a lot of pretty deep learning in a very quick period of time. I observed this and I measured it and I recorded it. And I called it self-organized learning. Well, that's about as far as I got, but I still didn't know how it worked. Um, I had to turn back to a little corner of physics called complex dynamical systems to look for an answer. And the answer turned out to be um, the way nature works. You know, when you connect things to each other, whether they're things or whether they're children, when you connect them to each other so that what one person says affects all the others and what all the others say affects that one person, and you allow this to go on and on and on, after a while, you get order. You get spontaneous order. And I thought, well, is this what's happening then at the hole in the wall? Is this what I'm seeing? Is this, uh, is this at the heart of learning then? You know, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not going to say I, 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 the answer is yes. I don't know. I don't know even now if that's what is happening then. So, but so ask, I do know. Yeah, go ahead, Gary. No, no go ahead. Say what you, you do now. Go ahead. I was just going to say that I just know this one fact that a single child trying to learn something by himself or herself is usually less efficient at it than if a group of children, usually about four, were trying to do the whole thing together. This much I know from measurements. Why? Well, we need to examine further. So, I'm sure that some people can suspend their disbelief sufficiently to imagine that kids could figure out how to operate the computer by themselves. But what have you seen that they can actually do or that they've been able to learn to do in that way? 
Well, uh, the way it went was that to start with, uh, they could you know go from one website to another, and then they could move back and forth between websites, and and people said, okay, so they're just you know doing a bit of trial and error, and they're pointing and clicking at stuff. Then one day somebody downloaded a game and installed it. And I said, well, that's not just pointing and clicking. They're actually doing something meaningful, something that uh, somebody And people said, no, no, they couldn't have. How can, how can these street children in India learn how to you know, download and install a program? But I said, well, how come they're playing that game in that case? And nobody knew. And then more games came. And then one day, an important game stopped working. And all the children, mainly little boys, said, the computer's broken down. It's not working because of her. And I said, because of whom? And they said, her. Well, her turned out to be an eight-year-old girl. Uh, the daughter of, uh, you know, laborers, what we call migrant workers, uh, her, her parents would lift bricks uh, from one truck and put it into another. And when she had a bit of free time, because her parents also made her lift some bricks, she would run to the computer and do stuff on it, to her hole-in-the-wall computer. So I said, well, what about her? I mean, what's she doing? Well, it turned out that this little girl would rush back to the computer, play a game for a little while, go to the Windows registry, change a line so that everything stopped. And then she would go back to lifting her bricks. And the boys would come and say, everything's broken down. And then this girl would come back just fix whatever she had done to the Windows registry and everything would start working again. And I thought, well, what is this? I mean, she obviously doesn't know anything about computers. But what exactly is she doing? Well, the answer is she is doing what she wanted to do. She is able to play the game when she wants to. And she's able to stop other people from playing the game, the little boys, when she wants to. So, is that all right? The education system said no. The education system said there is no deep learning. And I said, yeah, but she's playing the game when she wants to. And the education system said, that's because she's a bad girl. <laughs> you tell me, Gary, was she a bad girl or what? <laughs> So what other kinds of things have the kids done? Well, uh, you know, I, I tested them for all sorts of things. Well, the kind of thing I described to you was what they had arrived at with trial and error. Then I started asking them questions. I said, oh, by the way, can you find out blah, blah, blah. I'll give you an example. I'd, I'd ask them, so what time is it? Can you find out from the computer? You know, they don't have watches, those uh, poor kids. So they would say, yeah, that's very easy. And they would tell me the time in an instant. And I would say, cool, that's fantastic. So can you tell me, uh, so if it's like 10 o'clock, 
And is it also 10 o'clock in the next village? And it's of course, of course it's 10 o'clock. It's 10 o'clock over here, it's 10 o'clock over there. I say, well, what about the next town? It's 10 o'clock over there. I say, you mean it's 10 o'clock everywhere? Yeah, it's 10 o'clock everywhere. Come on, they said. I said, what about New York? They said, what's New York? I said, you find out. You've got a computer. You find out. What's New York and what's the time over there? Is it also 10 o'clock? It took them about 20 minutes. And then they came back and said, gosh, this place, it's crazy. It's not 10 o'clock over there. So I said, well, what's wrong with it then? And they said, we don't know. But it seems that the time is different in New York than it is in India. And I said, okay, you figure that out. I don't know why it's different. It took them another 30 minutes. And then finally, I'll, I'll never forget this. Finally, there was one little boy who said, the earth is a sphere. It turns around the sun. The side that is sunny is day. And the side that is dark is night. So obviously, day and night have different times. I thought, if this isn't deep learning, I don't know what it is. So if so, the, yeah, go ahead, Gary. I was say, so if if molecules or electrons don't have computers, right? That that you're talking about self-organizing systems. Um, what's the contribution? What's the importance of the computer in 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 the self-organized learning? Well, you know, it's not so much the computer. The computer is just a gateway. The computer is just a gateway to the internet. What is absolutely, absolutely the most important factor in this whole thing is the internet. The ability for millions, billions of people to connect with each other, the network. So uh, I sometimes ask people, do you believe that the internet exists? And obviously everybody thinks that's kind of silly, this, this old professor, <laughs> of course the internet exists. So then I ask them the next question, well, where is it? And then everybody's a bit quiet. And then they say, well, you know, I mean, like, it's like a network, it's like this, it's like that. I asked the children in the Indian villages the same question. I asked them, where is the internet? And they gave me a, a really nice answer, you know, a cool answer. They said, it's over there. And I said, where? And they said, over there. That's all you can say about networks, you know, it's there. But they don't actually have a physical existence. So the answer to your question, Gary, it's not the computer, it's the internet. It's that thing which exists, but doesn't exist anywhere. It will transform education and it transforms all our lives, as we know. In the middle of this pandemic, what are we surviving with? The internet, this global network, which exists, but it doesn't exist anywhere. So, so what are the limitations for learning there? What, 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 what are the things that, that are more problematic to learn in, in the way that you've described? Or are there things? Well, you know, yeah, there are, there are. Of course there are, there are many. 
you know if you if you want a child to learn how to uh, solve an equation um, you could have a group of children you could have the internet uh, then they can do it but they're not really very good at it they don't they don't get much deep learning trying to figure an answer to that question what they can do is they can solve an equation if you give it to them they don't know how this is another kind of learning and i don't know whether it's of value i once uh, i once wrote a quadratic equation i wrote it down on a board somewhere in england to a group of children who had not yet started algebra so they said what's this and i said well what do you think and they said how can you have letters and numbers together you know like x and a 2 and i said i don't know it's just that way why don't you use the internet and figure it out half an hour passed these children were about nine years old half an hour later there was a big buzz in the room and i kept hearing the word damascus and i said what damascus i said hey guys what's this about damascus and they said you know what you wrote over there that's called algebra and damascus had something to do with it there were wars fought over algebra i said oh come on i was just asking you how do you solve this equation and they said yeah we did that in the first 15 minutes the answer is and they told me whatever 32 or something like that and the rest of the time they were on this history of algebra and i thought well you know what what do i do with this is this good learning or is it bad learning my objective was to teach them my objective was to let them learn how to solve a quadratic equation but they say they solved it by asking google in 15 minutes and the rest of the time they were exploring the history of algebra is that good or is that bad anyway i never got an answer the session well, ended the session ended and just before i was coming out of the room there was one little boy who stopped me and said sugata there's one more thing we forgot to tell you i said what he said 32 is only one of the answers this equation has two of them well I leave it with you guys. What, do you, what sense so, do you make of this? Well, so the, but the the mere solving of the problem is is sort of all that school is traditionally expected of kids, right? Yeah. And, and the rest of it is kind of a network of knowledge that that that's that's over there that they're making these connections in all kinds of different ways. Um, we'll open this up in a in a minute. I have one quick anecdote and a question that we've already gotten. Um, the question is the the typical one that that anyone who's ever done any research in the social sciences gets, which is, is there any follow up on the kids who were involved in the hole in the wall research? You know, so what happened? Oh, to them? Did, they, did they become astrophysicists and billionaires and fashion designers? <laughs> as as you as usual, we have good answers and bad answers. The first thing is that I there was no way I could have tracked those 
hundreds of thousands of kids. I had no, no money to do that sort of tracking. So I could only incidentally and accidentally track whoever I, I could find. So I can only give you anecdotal cases. A good anecdotal case. There was a, there was a kid in a village in uh, Western India. And he said, he said to me, these are his words. He said, when I was eight, in my hole in the wall computer, I found a magazine called New Scientist. And I used to read it. I don't know what he was doing trying to read the New Scientist at age eight. He said, I got really interested in evolutionary biology. And I decided I would learn evolutionary biology. I said, who told you it's called evolutionary biology? He said, oh, I don't know, all these other kids, they all, they all read the new scientists and they said this is called evolutionary biology. So anyway, he did his school, he finished his school, he did his exams and everything. One day, many years later, I was speaking at a meeting in Connecticut and I was saying to someone in the audience, I don't know what happened to these kids when a voice spoke up from the back and a hand went up and a young man stood up with a, you know, a very smart beard. And he said, sir, I am one of the hole in the wall kids. And I said, you, what's your name? And he gave me his name. I didn't remember him. And I said, what are you doing? He said, sir, I'm doing a PhD on evolutionary biology at Yale. I said, gosh, who paid for that? And he said, sir, I got a full scholarship. Well, that was a good story. There was another kid, the very, one of the very first kids that came to the hole in the wall computer. They broke that computer down, the government did, because they wanted to build a parking lot over there. That boy's name was Rajinder. Rajinder is now 20 something years old. He is the owner of a small tea stall. He sells tea just outside where that computer used to be. He's not rich, he's pretty poor. I asked him about his computer and they said they took away my computer so I couldn't become anybody. But yes, I do sell tea and whenever anybody in the neighborhood has a problem with his smartphone, they come to me. So that's the bad story. I'm sure there are many, many like that. So there's a question that that comes up about gender and did you, did you observe any sort of patterns that were gendered or related to boys versus girls or you know that were predictable in any way? Yeah, well, I mean, firstly, there's a misconception that this sort of thing, uh, you know, hole in the wall computer is predominated by boys. That's not true. I mean, it's used as much by girls as it is for boys, but they use it for different purposes and they gain different things from it. I don't quite understand the whole mechanics of it, but I'll give you a couple of examples. There's a girl who was one of the hole in the wall girls. She went on, she did computer science somewhere, and she's now an entrepreneur. And what does she do? She builds computer programs for poor children to use. What, what would you expect? There's another girl in a village 
And she spoke to me and she said, I want to be a police woman. I've seen a lot of police women on the computer, on the internet. I want to be like them. And I said, why? Why a police woman? And she looked down a bit and looked sideways a bit and said, because I have to fix a few things, she said. <laughs> I said, okay. <laughs> and then there was another girl in Delhi and she was a hole in the wall girl. And I asked her, in fact, the, what, uh, somebody from the State Department in the US interviewed her, it's on YouTube, and asked her, what would you want to become when you grow up? And she said, I want to be a lawyer. And I said, a lawyer? Why, why a lawyer? Because she said, because bad things happen to good people and you need a lawyer to fix them. So I am going to be a lawyer. Well, I, I don't know again, I leave it to you. Uh, will these girls make it? Will they become what they wanted to do? Uh, was it worth it for the hole in the wall to have given them these ideas? Or should they have just gone ahead, got married and become a household help somewhere? I don't know, in India, we have mixed up opinions about it. I'll leave it with you. Now, I recently read, you, you posted something, uh, Facebook, you told the story of asking several hundred kids, why is it that some people are happy when there's nothing to do and other people are unhappy when there's nothing to do? And the kids went off and they had these wonderful discussions. And when they came back to share what they had, they, they had determined, that, you know, it, it touched on all sorts of issues of psychology and, you know, um, and other fields. And, and then I shared that. And it's kind of a uniquely Western view, but people immediately demanded evidence. And, and even more so than evidence, they wanted, they wanted to know, can I watch the conversation somewhere? Can I read what the kids said? And, and I felt a bit sad about it because it was such a simple act of asking kids an interesting question. And, and people's imaginations are so suppressed that they, instead of trying it themselves or thinking of an interesting question to ask some kids, they wanted, they wanted to see how someone else did it, or they wanted to see what the right answers were. They wanted to know what it looked like, or they wanted to make excuses for why it worked with Indian children, but wouldn't work with Canadian children. Um, I'm, I'm sure you're, you've sort of deal with those, those kinds of frustrations on a regular basis, but a lot of, a lot of what you're suggesting in minimally evasive education is, it's just backing off a little bit, right? And, and having a go, as the Australians would say. Yeah, that's what, and uh, you know, they, the children always do come up with surprising answers. The problem is that when adults listen to these surprising answers, they try to think of every possible reason why the child would have said it without understanding it. That's the first mm. step we start from. Oh, he must have said, hey, he's just a kid, that sort of thing. You're talking about India. I'm going to tell you about New York City. I'm going to tell you about Harlem. In Harlem, in a self-organized learning environment. I mean, Jess and I are on the Zoom. <laughs> yeah, well, 
Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, they, they, the children. Uh, I asked the children, well, what, "What would you? What's a good question?" The children thought, and they said, "Well, uh, why do dogs chase cats?" And I said, "Well, actually, I, I, I don't quite know, but there must be a good answer to this. You find out." So they worked on this for a while. Why do dogs chase cats? That's okay. That's like what kids do. What they came up with was the following, and it's again available on YouTube because uh, an American filmmaker actually filmed the whole thing. They said, when the cat sees the dog, the cat bears her fangs. When the dog sees the fangs, the dog thinks the cat's going to attack. So the dog attacks first. And the cat attacks back, and they start doing all sorts of things like this. Their conclusion was, their conclusion was, a lot of fights start because of misunderstanding. Where else would you hear this but from Harlem? Is that deep or is it shallow? You tell me. That's fabulous. Okay, let's take a couple of questions from the the audience. Um, someone, I'm looking to see who's got a hand. Oh, um, uh, someone, someone asked, Sandra Paul asked, um, saw on Twitter a question that computers don't teach students, that teachers teach students. Do you agree? Yeah, yeah, I agree. Uh, there, there's a, I would put another sentence there. Uh, children learn from computers. The computer doesn't teach them. Teachers teach the children. Children don't necessarily learn from them. I know you're going to be mad at this, but that's how it is. Right. right. I mean, you know, learning isn't the direct result of having been taught. You can, you can teach them and teach them and teach them, but they don't necessarily stay taught. Okay, Ray, I'm going to unmute you and you can ask your question. I hope. How about now? Go ahead. Um, so I, I really like your idea of uh, organizing the students into groups. Um, my problem is that since my students are now so far apart, um, how do I let that happen naturally? Yeah, it's, cool. it's a great question. It's a great question. Thank, thanks for asking. I, I stopped you there because you know, I want to answer that bit. Uh, I've been experimenting. Uh, you know, on, on, on a medium like Zoom, you can get hundreds and hundreds of children together. Doesn't work because First, the, I can't see them. They can see me, but they can't see each other. It's, we cannot pretend to build a classroom using a different medium. I once described this as trying to sit inside an automobile, a car, and then trying to make it behave like a horse and cart. It doesn't work. Okay, We need something else. How many ch children can I see on this little screen on Zoom? I'd say about four or five. So let's get a group of four. 
get a group of four. How long can I engage their attention on this digital medium? I'd say not more than an hour. So four children for one hour. Can I redefine class as four children? Can I redefine a semester as one hour? Can that be the new school? Can I do that over and over again? Because I think if you're a teacher and if you had four children on your little screen on Zoom, you can achieve an educational objective. You can do it easily and you can do it safely. But if I give you the same 24 children that you had in your class, that's not going to work. You're just going to say, I'm going to hope that this pandemic ends very quickly so that I can go back to doing what I I hope this makes sense. We've got to we've got to rethink class sizes. We've got to rethink durations. We've got to rethink objectives. We've got to rethink curricula. We've got to rethink assessment. Don't go back. You know. Right, and and practically, you know, in in Zoom and in other online environments, you can have break breakout rooms or. Even better yet, the students could figure out the way that, that they're going to communicate and then and then meet with you, uh, you know, in a small group yeah. or, or in a larger format. Yes, they, they do, uh, Gary, but uh, I've, I've tried it once. Uh, somebody did a session where I had 400 children, 400 children from across India uh, and, and a couple of other countries altogether. And there I was, I, I was going to set them a question. I was going to try to do a soul session and the organizers had set up some 50 or 60 different breakout rooms and I could go from one breakout room to the other it was fabulous you know in cyberspace I could do all of this so I started going from one breakout room to the other each breakout room had four or five children so what were they doing but they were conversing but they weren't actually conversing about the problem they were saying things like, who are you <laughs> to another child? And the other child said, well, what do you care? And that sort of thing. And then a, a, a girl said, I'm eating an apple. A boy said, well, stop eating it because we've got a problem to solve. And that's all. And I said, but this is not getting me anywhere. They all enjoyed themselves. But those breakout rooms were not inside the school. They were not inside anything. They were up there somewhere. The children can sense that those rooms are not real. That the people in those rooms may not be all that real as well. So once again, my caution, don't think that you have recreated the school. That's not going to work. So how is that breakout room different from the hole in the wall? Well, you know, uh, it isn't, except for one thing, that the breakout room has been made by somebody and the children have been asked to go in there with an agenda of some sort or the other. Yeah. And arbitrarily assigned to it. Yeah, the hole in the wall just popped into existence in the middle of nowhere and nobody told them what it was and nobody told them what they have to do with it. That's very hard to replicate, actually, in, in, in this space. 
Well, so with some, with some sense of, of community and freedom, that problem might be solved. It's possible. It's possible. It's with children who know each other, who can choose which ones they're going to work with. Yeah. That's and how and when. And, and the way they arrive at a question, it's amazing how, how that mechanism works. I mean, you could have a group of children. I remember from the hole in the wall experiment, there was a group of children who were researching on the internet about arthritis. I thought, what oh, arthritis? It turned out that somebody's mother or grandmother or something had a pain, a really bad pain. And they came to this hole in the wall. All his friends were there. And they said, look, let's not waste time. Let's figure out, is there a medicine for grandma? We've got to find that. If we find that, we'll walk to the nearest town and we'll get that medicine. You know, the way children think. Uh, that question did not come from anybody. It didn't come from a teacher. It came from life. Is it possible to make a curriculum out of questions that come like this, that come from life, and that perhaps don't even have an answer, like arthritis? Is it possible to make a curriculum out of that? I wonder. Do you ever think about why some people are better at asking those questions than others, or why lots of pe why people have some people have lots of questions and others don't? Yeah, well, you know, Gary, I, I don't know. I, I think we, we all know how to ask these questions. It's just that we, uh, we stop ourselves and then we finally unlearn it. We, we know this uh, very well at ages of five, six, seven. I mean, you know, you know those kids. They ask questions all the time and they ask weird questions. Uh, what happens? What do we do to them to stop them? You know, uh, I, I don't know. I, I, I don't know. I mean, do we purposefully stop them or does it just stop by itself? Is there a point at which we say, oh, that's a very childlike question. You know, I, I have more important things to do. If we can move away from that, if you can throw your mind back to when you were eight or nine years old, that nine-year-old brain has the questions that you're looking for, Gary. That's uh, beautiful. I, John, John Taylor Gatto used to make a distinction between childish and childlike and found that schools, yeah. tend, to, schools tend to be childish institutions, not childlike. I know. Ones. I know. I, I, I think I know exactly what you mean. I mean, childish, childish is an insulting word. Childlike is a glorious word. Okay, let's take one or two more questions and we'll let you go. Someone put your hand up. Angela, I'm going to unmute you and you got it. Let's see. I hope. There we go. I'm good. So I have a question because you did your research, which, by the way, I love your TED Talk. It was so awesome. Um, but you did your research in um, a poor area where you talked about, like, the little girl was working. So that they, these kids know, well, like work, they know the downside of like society. And same thing if you go into, you know, um, a black neighborhood that is, you know, or a poor neighborhood, any poor neighborhood in the world. Do you think that that had a, uh, made a difference with the way that the kids interacted with the computer? Because they had a very real sense 
of like their lives and their parents' lives and, and that this computer thing is like different? Yeah, well, that, that's a really deep question. Thanks for asking that because I, I think I know what you mean and I think it's really deep there. Uh, does it make a difference or does it not? Will, will rich people's children behave the same way as those other kids did? That's a question I've been asked often. The answer is, well, yes and no. The rich people's children, they have lots of computers, they have computers at home, they have everything. But you know, there's one great word of hope. When they are young enough, if the question is deep enough, they all engage. I'll give you one last example. <laughs> a teacher in Cyprus, in her sessions, she was supposed to teach the history of the Roman Empire. I happened to be there, and she said, well, what about your method? How would you apply that to this lesson? And I said, okay, let's try. And I was scared, but I said, let's try. Now, these were rich people's children. They weren't poor. I went into this class full of eight-year-olds and I pulled out Google Maps. I zoomed in on Rome. I zoomed further until I got to the Colosseum. I just stood there silently with the Colosseum on the screen. Big screen. Big screens are important. The children said, what's that? And I said, that's what I want to know. I want you to find out what's that building and why is it broken? 40 minutes later, we had the history of the Roman Empire. So yes, you can engage them. You can engage them, rich or poor. The poor children will come at it from a different social perspective. The rich children come at it from, but children are children. And please, all of you, children, don't segregate children into rich and poor and everything. When you're eight years old, you are poor, you are dirty, okay, always. It's what we do to them later that changes everything. That's, that's beautiful. I, you know, I often say less us, more them. You know, a, a big part of what, what you're talking about is whenever there's an opportunity for some educational transaction to, to see if there's less that you can do and more that they can do to shift as much agency as possible. Absolutely. That's, Let's, let's take one more question if someone wants to get one in quickly and then we'll let you go. And I can hang in if you want. Anyone, put your hand up. I'm waiting. Speak now, this is a great opportunity. Oh yeah, Jenny, Jenny, can you undo it? Jenny, I don't see it, so go for it. Thank you for this wonderful talk first. Uh, I'm coming back in time when there was no internet, no even and no Google. 84 in Bulgaria, I had a gypsy boy, eight year old, who asked, "Why is it that the computers understand only English and Bulgarian?" It was logo. And I said, "Tell me how it's forward and right in Roma language. I'll tell you." And then he taught the computer to speak his mother tongue 
and was the happiest person. So I think that even before internet, the fact that computer uh, was an environment where the kids could be teachers is great. I, I think that that's a taught by them. I think that's a fabulous point, you know. That that's a fabulous point. I mean, I I really appreciate you making that point because I I, I was emphasizing on the internet as opposed to the computer. But I think now that listening to you, I tend to I I, I tend to throw my mind back at when computers came in and there was no internet and the way children used to react. Do you remember that even then? Children used to be attracted to computers like a magnet. Why? Because unlike other toys, the computer responded when they did something. And children used to love that. And they used to love making the computer do things and to show off with their parents and, and so on. So yes, I, I, I take back a part of what I said. Yes, the internet is supremely important for children's learning, but the computer itself for really young children, the computer itself, it is also an incredible learning mechanism for them. If you if you want to take a stab at it, we've got a couple of questions in the chat to just quickly um the how do we encourage curiosity inquiry in students and how do we convince teachers to think this way? I think you've covered some well, of this ground, but yeah, I did. I mean, I, I'm going to take that second question uh, first, and, and uh, that's all I'll do. After that, I've got to push off because, you know, I've... Uh, Fair enough. Yeah. So, so the second question, what do we do? I think that's really important. How do we get teachers to, to, to understand this? You know, I could, I could talk till I'm blue in the face, and you're going to appreciate it, and you're going to say that's cool and everything, but you have to do it yourself. You have to give it a chance. You can't just read what I'm writing and hear what I'm saying and then criticize it. Too many people do that. You know? I'm, I'm sorry to say this, but too many people do that. Don't do that. For heaven's sake, it's the simplest thing on the planet. Take a group of children, ask them a question, give them the internet and step back. You try it. That's the best way to change yourself as a teacher. And I can tell you that you change yourself more than you could imagine. Well, Gary, well everyone, everyone virtually join me in thanking Sugata Mitra for his generosity and his time and giving us so much to think about. And I'll let, let him disappear and, and then I can continue if anybody wants to chat with me a little bit. Thanks so much, Sugata. I owe you one. I look forward to a time where we can spend some time together as soon as possible. All right. I'll see you later, Gary. Thanks for having me. Thanks see to you. Thank you so much. Listening. Thank you. Thanks. All right. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye. Love Thanks. you. Thanks. Bye. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, Roger. Okay. Thank you. So now you can play Stump the Chump with me. Anyone want to talk about anything that amuses them? Anything that's on their mind? I see Debbie's got her hand up. Debbie, you want to get in? Well, Steve had a question, but I think it got answered. Uh, I'll let him talk. It's it sort of got answered, but go ahead and take a stab at it because we can't hear it too many times. Um, <laughs> I, I, you know, I I've been trying to think like Debbie does and like you do and like you know Sagatamitra does for a long time, 
And it just doesn't always come obvious to me. Like, how do you, how does it come to mind that the way to, you know, the way to get to Roman culture is to, you know, put the picture of the Colosseum up and, and wait for the silence, you know, to bring up the answers. Yeah, teachers are not comfortable with silence, I think. I'm, I mean, I, I think about it a slightly different way as someone who, who works with, with teachers. Um, I wonder sometimes why it is that I could listen to the news in the car on the way to school or see something on the front page of a newspaper or watch a TV show and have a million ideas for things to try with kids or questions to ask. And other people don't. And I think, I think what he was talking about was this kind of <laughs> more uh, philosophical uh, of you, you just have to sort of go there. You have to try some things. You have to let go of yourself a little bit. Um, and, and as I've been saying in, in previous conversations, well, you know, if, if a lesson doesn't go particularly well, that's okay to say, you know, I, I, wow, we really stunk up the place that time, uh, you know, see you tomorrow. Um, but I think, you know, watch great documentaries and see how everything, you know, there used to be, what was that show? Was it called Connections? I mean, there were, there's been a million TV shows about how things are all tied together in interesting ways. Um, and, and it doesn't mean necessarily that I think you need to surrender the curriculum at whatever age or discipline area, disciplinary area to the, to the kids entirely. But I think it is a matter of trying to stimulate that childlike wonder and that, that and, and encourage that curiosity that, that I think is helpful in, in achieving what he was talking about. There's no, there's no right or wrong answer to, 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 to be definitive about that. Um, you know, may get into the habit of saying, I wonder, and, and if you're not that kind of person, there's, there's a million self-help books on taking risks and, you know, things like that, that may, may be helpful. I don't know. Some of it, some of it's permission, but I think ultimately you have to give yourself permission. The external permission isn't half as as useful as recognizing what what's what's possible. And and the thing that 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 Mitra contributes is giving people something to look at that causes them to wonder if um, things need not be as they seem. That well, look what these kids are doing, and. I wonder, and then hopefully you can make the leap to saying, I wonder what I could do so that kids fall in such interesting ways. But fundamentally what he's, what he's also acknowledging is that that's the, that's the natural default of humans. And maybe we have to figure out a way to, to, to open the valves on, on what makes us human to allow us to return to that natural state. Who else? You wanna, uh, how do we want to deal with this? This is so, this software is so terrible. Anybody else have anything you want to ask or say or? Hi, Gary. Hi, hi, Jean. Jean, um, I'm uh, um, I'm wondering. I have been wondering a lot about um, you know, the personality, the mindset of someone who might go into teaching and how that um, ties into what you were just talking about. You know, if, if, if a teacher is not willing to even look at 
um, or recognize that a that a you know a lesson has gone sideways, um, but is satisfied with the fact that they've delivered that lesson. Um, you know, I was wondering, like, you know, what you've, what strategies you or others have uh, might have used in situations like that. Well, you know, there's there's a really interesting question that's kind of primal. That's that's in the spirit of some of the questions that that Mitra was asking, like. If you ask a two or three year old who's never seen any representations of school to play school, they tend to be a tyrant. Um, and and you wonder if that's nature or nurture. Did they, did they get that from somewhere or is that kind of a, a human, you know, sort of basic biological uh, yeah. desire to, to rule over others? Um, I, I think that people people need practice with it and and a lot of what we've done in education um from a policy perspective like you know we've got this education policy spiral of um we remove agency from teachers we hand them a script we hand them a curriculum we hand them the tests and then we say and then by by naturally occurring behavior they become less thoughtful more automatized more automatic in what they do less reflective and then we say that's not working and we remove more agency from the teachers and it's this descending spiral downward and i think we need to break the cycle and we need to by giving teachers some responsibility some autonomy some freedom to determine what it is they're going to teach and how they're going to teach it to say that we've got this morbidly obese curriculum and the key to success is as my friend brian harvey likes to say throw out half the curriculum anyhow or I've been talking about in previous chats about, you know, determine the five big ideas of what you're trying to teach and figure out projects that, that can ensure that kids have, have rich experience with those five big ideas. Um, I think we can start to break that cycle. But the, the current system um, has, 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 has hamstrung a lot of teachers in that way. And, and I got into a lot of trouble for tweeting this last week. In fact, I spent three hours direct messaging someone who was calling me all sorts of names to try to get them to calm down. But uh, fundamentally, I think assessment is lazy. That, that you have some sort of objective notion that kids know something, which is so fundamentally different from the approach that the Reggio Emilia educators take of the responsibility of the teacher being to be a researcher who asks, asks the sorts of questions about what kids know and can do in a spirit that, that Mitra was asking, Mitra's kids were asking about the universe. So that it's the primary res responsibility of the teacher in their role to make private thinking public, invisible thinking visible. That if you could sit next to kids, if you can do things with them, if you can talk to them about their work, if you can observe their practices, um, then you're in a much better position to do the kinds of things that we were talking about. And let me just say as a cautionary note, the images that I'm seeing of schools reopening are going to reinforce all of the worst inclinations of traditional education, which is some loudmouth know-it-all at the front of the room yelling at kids who are behind barriers two meters apart. And, and so in some ways, we, we ought to be looking at how can we create more intimacy online because online might be the place where you can actually be creative and collaborative and where you can actually get to know students. But a lot of the stuff that, that Sylvia and I and, and you and others have been advocating for over the last decade or so, um, I, 
I don't have a great way to replace lean, you know, sitting next to a kid or leaning over their shoulder um, to help them understand something. I think fundamentally, all teaching is mano a mano. All teaching is one-on-one. -on -one. We, we just have, have devised all sorts of clever tricks to keep the other number of kids distracted while we're teaching one person. But if you think about how you teach someone to write or to play the cello or things that aren't just questions you can ask of the internet, those tend to be reciprocal conversations that are fast and furious and ongoing that, that tend to be you know, one-to-one. -one. So you know, the rushing back to school is not only potentially medically dangerous, but I, I think it may be pedagogically dangerous as well. You know, I was thinking about in the early days of the web, um, I, I had a couple of these questions that were like surefire that I used to use both in my graduate school classes, but also in workshops with kids that were just these sort of, as David was saying, these kind of ungoogleable, uh, not, not just not ungoogleable questions. They were Googleable, but then they caused so much cognitive dissonance that really good conversations emerged. And, and it turned out that some of these questions were heavily rooted or influenced by culture and geographic location and where you grew up and what your perspective was. So there was a pair of questions that I used to ask. One I would ask of, of Australian educators first, and then the other I would ask of American educators first, and then I would flip it. So I would ask educators outside of the U.S. context, were the Chicago Seven martyrs? The Chicago Seven, the Yippies, um, Abby Hoffman and um, Tom Hayden and Bobby Seale um, as uh, Jerry Rubin and such, the folks who were arrested and tried for trying to overthrow the United States government. Um, from when you ask that question in an American context, you invariably had people whose brothers fought in Vietnam or died in Vietnam and they'd get very defensive about the anti-war movement. You asked anywhere else, um, people would have a very different perspective on it. And by asking a sort of subjective question, like, were they martyrs? It requires you to find out what a martyr is first. And if you Google seven martyrs instead of Chicago seven, you, you find out that there's a religious thing that's related to seven martyrs. It's completely different. And the American context question that I used to start with was, is Ned Kelly a hero? And the American teachers would, would very quickly realize that every fourth grade ch child in Australia is taught about this hero bush ranger named Ned Kelly. And the American educators would immediately see that he shot police officers. And that would cause all sorts of interesting discussions about can you shoot police officers and be considered a hero? And then they would invariably discover that, fourth that this was part of the fourth grade curriculum somewhere. And that would cause them to try to wonder what that was about. Um, and then one that, I, that I, I should pull back out of my bag of tricks. I used this for years and years and years. I was waiting for a taxi once in an Australian suburb. And the area had a large Middle Eastern population. And there was a poster on, tacked up to a telephone pole that was obviously an election poster, a campaign poster. It was in some Middle Eastern language that I didn't speak or recognize. And it had lots of people on it. It kind of looked like a Sgt. Pepper cover. And I used to, I used to ask classes of kids and adults alike, um, who do they want me to vote for? 
And this was before you could even use image, image search, you know, and, and various people, you know, there wasn't a, there wasn't a group of 10 year olds anywhere in the world that in 15 or 20 minutes couldn't tell me who they wanted me to vote for. But then even if they could answer that initial question, kind of like Mitra was talking about, it would lead to a million other questions. Like this person was the candidate for the Assyrian Christian party. So now you want to know, well, what's an Assyrian? Is that the same as being Syrian? And why are there Christians in, a, in Iraq and how many are left? And then you find out it's not such a great deal to be a Christian in Iraq. And there's this rabbit hole of really interesting connections that you can go down. But one of the things that I'm seeing on the internet today is different kinds of experiences that aren't just the, in, uh, the nature of being able to get an answer to your question. You know, Stephen Wolfram, arguably one of the most important living mathematicians, scientists, physicists, computer scientists, um, and not, not a humble soul, um, thinks he's on the precipice of revolutionizing physics. And during this pandemic, he's published all of his findings and all of the tools that he's using and has encouraged other people to have a go. And he's hosting Ask Me Anything sessions for kids and he's collaborating with strangers on this. That's the kinds of things kids can be doing. I wrote in my article, What's My Hurry, about the gift of time that this period gives us, where kids might actually become good at things like programming or, or fill in the blank, things that take longer than 42 minutes. And, and I think that when we get um, focused on learning by doing, learning by making, um, we sometimes way too narrowly define what making or doing is. And we should think of it more broadly as, as making sense or knowledge construction. And the fact that you know people like Chick Corea have practiced online for an infinitely large audience 30 times during the pandemic. The idea that you could watch one of the world's greatest musicians practice and, and hear him talk about why he's doing what he's doing. And um, sure, there's a voyeurism associated with that. Um, and you can just watch it passively, but even just enjoying the beauty of the music, I think is, is making sense. And if you're inclined to want to be a better musician, there's things in those observations, those experiences in those observations that lead you to get better at what it is that you do. Um, let's take one or two more questions. Hopefully the technology is going to work and then we'll call it a day. Anyone? You should be able to unmute. If not, put your hand up and I'll unmute you. I'm trying to follow this. I, if, while we're waiting to see if anyone else wants to speak up, um, I'm gonna try some different things in the near future. I'm thinking about doing a program along with me activity for beginner programmers and be teachers interested in teaching programming to get a sense of how I teach programming in a spirit similar to what we've been discussing. Um, maybe I'll con some of my other friends into joining me, but, um, and, and hopefully in the near future, I'll have some announcements about some other things that, that I'm going to create that hopefully will, will develop some sort of audience online. Um, Hermela, if I didn't pronounce that incorrectly. Hi, Hi. yeah, it's Hermela. 
Carmela. Um, so I'm I'm an, currently an undergrad student that's interested in education. Sure. So one of my questions, and I, based on my experiences within the public K to 12 system, um, in your opinion, how do you think we can push for equity to be at the forefront of our conversation to meet the needs of students in underserved communities? Sure. Um, what do you think about that? Where are you? I'm currently in Northern Virginia. Okay. I, oh, why can't I think of his name? I was at a, an event with, oh, I, I'm sorry, I can't think of his name off the top of my head, the blue vest guy. Um, one, one of the leaders of, of Black Lives Matter, and he was asked the question about um, how do you teach for inclusion? How do you teach for equity? And, and he gave a very short answer that I concur with wholeheartedly. And I will, I will expound upon it once I tell you what his answer was. And DeRay McKesson, I'm sorry, I, his name left me. Um, he said, teach better. And, you know, teaching is hard. And there's a very well-known public state university not far from where I live that's been known for more than half a century for having a fabulous ed school. And not only did they have a fabulous ed school, they had an even more fabulous um, lab school where they could put the ideas into practice and where young teacher candidates could apprentice with master teachers who had a long tradition and, and um, reputation for highly effective progressive educational practices. And a few years ago, I learned that the lab school no longer gets student teachers from the ed school. And I thought, well, that's crazy. I mean, like the whole, that's the whole point of a lab school. Why wouldn't, you, why wouldn't the ed school be sending students there? And the answer I got was because our focus is now social justice, which meant in practice that rather than learning how to teach well, with excellent, creative, dynamic teachers, we're just going to send people less prepared into underserved areas. And I think there's a sort of paternalism and colonialism and misguided idea there that it's better to show up and, and not be as effective as a teacher than it is to be a really good teacher and then to work in those communities. So, I mean, you know, the, the issues of equity have been well documented and I'd recommend reading my favorite book by Jonathan Kozel, Ordinary Resurrection, Children in the Years of Hope. Um, Ordinary Resurrections isn't the book that's usually assigned to students who want to read Kozel or, or in programs that think people should read Kozel. They often read Savage Inequalities. But Ordinary Resurrections, I think, really celebrates the beauty and innocence and needs and of, of children in underserved communities. I think the best thing we can do is be mindful that we live in a racist classist, misogynistic, homophobic culture, and that we should fight against that, those forces every day. But the best way to serve the kids in, in dis disadvantaged communities is to wake up every morning asking, how do I make this the best seven hours of a kid's life? And how can I create a classroom or a school experience for these kids that the best private school parents would be jealous of? You know, none of us are talking about neglecting kids or not recognizing that there are differences and that they have they have 
may have substantially greater needs. But I think as, as Mitra said, um, children are children. Jonathan Kozel has been known to say, you're only seven once. And it's irresponsible and unconscionable of us to deny kids of all kids of certain qualities of experience, regardless of, of their zip code. So I think the best thing you can do is, is to be the best creative, open-minded, loving, caring, whimsical, open-hearted teacher possible. Do whatever you can to, to make that classroom a safe space, but not just a safe space, but a place where kids can wonder and where, where they can dream and where they can, they can get good at something. And I'm not particularly concerned with what that something is. I think we can create environments where kids can determine that and we can then support them in, in realizing that potential, even if, they, even if it's an interest that only lasts a short time and then it moves on to something else. So with that, folks, um, I want to thank you. I'm Gary at Steger.org. If anybody has any questions, please stay safe. Please stay sane. And I appreciate you spending time with us. And again, thanks to my friend Sugata for, for joining us from Calcutta. It was really special to have him. And it's really special to see all of you. I've got friends going back 35 years um, on a Zoom session. And I, I love you all. And thanks, folks. See you soon. We hope you enjoyed this Constructing Modern Knowledge podcast. Our theme music is Jazz Impromptu by Brian Lynch, HolisticMusicWorks.com. For podcasts and additional inspiration, check out our website, Live.ConstructingModernKnowledge.com. Be sure to visit CMKPress.com. That's CMKPress.com for books by creative educators for creative educators.